All right, if you open your Bibles to the second verse of the book of the prophet Obadiah. We begin there this evening, though we have pointed out earlier in our discussion of the structure of the entire book of Obadiah that there is a parallelism or symmetry found in verse 1 and verse 2. So in by way of review, can you pick it out the second time through? The symmetry or parallelism that is found in verse 1 and verse 2. stands out as a duplication. Is it actual words or just thoughts? Oh, it's actual words. Exact words are repeated. And what preposition goes before that? What preposition goes before that phrase, the nations? Among the nations. And does that occur in both verse 1 and verse 2? Yes, it does. Yes, there's a prepositional phrase which is duplicated in verse 1 and verse 2. Among the nations, the nations in Hebrew, Goyim. Now, Notice, once again, the reversal motif which dominates this entire prophecy. I outlined that reversal motif from verse to verse in general by way of overview several weeks ago, but let's notice it again here in verse 2. The ironic use of greatly in antithesis or opposition to what reverse word? In that same verse. Go ahead. Somebody, I heard somebody shout it out. Small. Small. Very good. Thank you, Clark. The prophet plays upon the self-centeredness of Edom, who regards herself as great, a motif which verses 3 and 4 will expand to make very explicit, but greatness, which God the Lord will reduce to smallness. In fact, God will reduce Edom to obliteration. Now keep in mind the larger picture of our tapestry. We've suggested that there are panels of a tapestry in Obadiah's vision, Hatzon, Verse 1. So keep that in mind as we think of what's going on in this verse. The great 
antithesis of reversal in the fortunes of Jacob and Esau, Judah and Edom, the former destined, I shall say predestined, to salvation, the latter predestined to destruction. The elder brother subservient to the younger at the end of Esau's national history, even as the elder brother was subservient to the younger at the beginning of Esau's history. You remember the prophecy that Isaac gives with respect to the two sons. The beginning as the end. The end as the beginning. The reversal of the decree of predestination enfolds the two brothers from beginning to end. Historically and eschatologically, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, the elder shall serve the younger. Historical finality matches eschatological finality. Final salvation and final destruction. Final salvation in history and in eternity and final destruction in history and in eternity. But verse 2 begins with behold in Hebrew hine. That bold invitation to see, to look upon, to see the divine humiliation of Edom. This is a vision. Verse 1 again, after all, this is Obadiah's vision. He wants you to see, to behold the tapestry depicting the hatred of the nations. For Edom, not God's hatred of Edom in this instance, but the hatred of the nations, as the nations are God's instrument of hatred against Edom. Her arrogance, which will be detailed in verses 3 and 4, her arrogance has earned her the contempt of her neighbors, of her former allies, this is all contained in the prophecy, of her trade partners, even of her blood relations, they despise her. The call to arms in verse 1 is a summons to the enemies of Edom to deliver a comeuppance to once upon a time and historically consistent in time, proud, arrogant Edom. When the Old Testament talks about pride and arrogance, Edom is at the forefront of that illustration. Behold, Hine, see it spread out on the tableau of Obadiah's vision. Edom Arrogant, proud, lifted up, and despised. Despised. And that word despised 
It comes here in Obadiah 2 from a Hebrew root, root out of the lemma Batzah, which is the very same Hebrew word used in Genesis, Genesis 25, verse 34. So, let's turn back to that passage. Genesis 25, verse 34. And Art, if you have it, will you read it out for us? Genesis 25, 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What did he despise? Yes, and the very same Hebrew word that Obadiah uses here, for you shall be greatly despised, Batzah, is used of Esau's despise, despite Batzah, of the birthright. After Esau sold his birthright for a mess of pottage, the narrator records that Esau, Batzah, despised his birthright. That which characterizes Esau at the beginning of his career is disdain, abhorrence, a despising nature. This is recognized by those who know Esau's descendants all the way down to the 6th century B.C., Obadiah's century. They are despicable, are the Edomites, as their father before them, Esau Edom himself. Boasting of their self-sufficiency, even as Esau boasted of his self-sufficient, apparently from his birthright. He is self-sufficient even without the birthright. Esau's act of selling his birthright is not an innocent matter of needing or wanting a meal because he was famished. It is a despicable act of rejection. It is a despicable, despised. Notice, this is his attitude. This is his characterization. It is a despicable act of rejection. Rejection of what? Rejection of God's covenant. Rejection of God's grace and mercy. Rejection of the primacy of the divine blessing. He rejects his birthright. He despises his birthright because he despises God. All this Esau displays as his voracious character devours a bowl of lentils. See on the tapestry that we have painted Esau's face buried in a bowl of stew, feeding his belly, feeding his self, turning his back on the covenant of grace, turning his back on the God of his father's godless Esau, 
Godless Esau is what the writer of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 labels him. Godless Esau. Because he despised God in despising his birthright. Despicable Esau is despised. You are greatly despised, O Edom, O generation of Esau. All around him, those whose God is their belly. Those for whom feeding their fleshly hungerings trumps feeding on the covenant promises of God. Esau despises the portrait of Christ. Esau despises the portrait of Christ veiled in the seed of blessing, the child of salvation, the eschatological son of Isaac, who will redeem the sons and daughters of the promise from their own despicable character and godlessness. In despising his birthright, Esau despises the birth of Christ. He despises the promised seed of redemption. He despises that promised seed that was given to Abraham and to Isaac. He despises it for the sake of a bowl of lentil stew. That's how cheap the seed of the promise is to Esau. Understand that when Genesis 25 records that statement, and the writer of Hebrews 12 records his analysis of the character of Esau, we're talking about a depravity that is not surface or innocent. It is a depravity which is deep and entrenched. And it holds God Almighty in contempt. Now, moving on to verse 3, unless you have any questions or comments. I've placed some emphasis on character already in analyzing the character of Esau under verse 2. Character elements in biblical material lead us to consider an explicit character indicator in this verse, verse 3. Now, as you scan that third verse, you're looking for something that indicates character. What would you suggest? Arrogance. Arrogance. Anything else? Or how is it expressed? How do I ascertain your character? How I act. And? March? Uh, what you say. What you say, yes. How you act and how you speak. Do we have speech in this verse? 
Yes, there we have a characterization paradigm. We have Edom or Esau speaking. We haven't heard the voice of Esau since the book of Genesis. But here we have the voice of his descendants who speak as he would speak. So, speech is the voice of character. It is how we understand the character of a person or the voice of a community. We understand the voice and the character of that community. It is featured here in a particular kind of speech. This is direct speech of what kind? Is it declarative? Marge? No, it is what? And what do we call that? It is not declarative. It is a question. It is interrogative. Correct. So, we have an interrogative of direct speech from the mouth of Esau's descendants. May we then suggest, like ancestor, like descendants. The characterization is thorough. And it's, as it were, though I don't mean this literally, it's, as it were, in the genes. Now, this interrogative, which you've already noted there in the third verse, is interrogative has a rhetorical flavor. A rhetorical question is a question with an assumed response. So what's the assumed response to the rhetorical question here? No one. No one. Very good. Exactly right. Who shall bring me down? No one will bring me down. The obvious answer is within the way the question is stated. Notice that the way the question is stated is also a reflection of the character again. The speech of Esau's sons and daughters underscores in dramatic rhetorical fashion a feature of the character of those Edomite sons and daughters. A feature which proceeds or arises from what? What does it arise from? And you'll note that that is duplicated in this verse. I don't see that word twice. What word do I see twice? This arrogance, this character arises from, go ahead, March. The heart. The heart, twice over. You see the duplication. It's an emphatic element, but it's also a psychological element. Talking not about the, the muscle, muscle of the anatomy, or talking about the psychological heart or soul of a person. <clears throat> This character of arrogant pride arises from the heart of Esau and his descendants, the Edomites. And what does our Lord Jesus say? Hold your finger there in Obadiah and let's turn over to the Gospel of Mark because the Gospel of Mark has this remark more fully than Matthew does. Mark chapter 7. Verses 21 to 22. Now we're noting 
our Lord Jesus comment on the heart. Verses 21 to 22 of Mark chapter 7. You have it, Kay? Sure, 21 and 22. Please. For from, the, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds the thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders, adulterers, deeds of coverty and wickedness, as well as deceit, Sensuality, envy, slander, pride, uh-huh. foolishness, wow. pride. And? And all these things. And the last word after pride. And foolishness. Yes. <clears throat> all these things proceed from within, from within the heart come from the inside of a person's character. So, what proceeds or comes out of the evil heart of the sons and daughters of Esau? Arrogance, pride, haughtiness, hubris, insolence, self-importance, vainglory, pompousness, imperiousness, brazen audacity, self-assuredness, bluster, braggadocio, even lewd braggadocio, all of this we find in Edom's character, modern men and women's character. All of this we find in humans' character, especially political men and women character, and we find it in our own sinful character as well. For Obadiah, inspired prophet of the all-knowing Lord God, pride, arrogant pride, is emblematic of Edom, Esau's sons and daughters. It is the besetting sin of the heart of that nation. This arrogance, which shows itself in overweening vainglory, spewing from their mouths, who will bring us down? Who? We, the high and mighty of the invulnerable the inaccessible clefts and cliffs and rocky crags of the Negev and the rifts of the Arabah. Our geography is our fortress. High and lifted up are our dwelling places. Who can ascend into our lofty hills and mountains? Who can lift up their hands against our impervious mountain strongholds? Who, we say, And again we say, who? That who echoes down the centuries in the resounding cry of every political demagogue and tyrant, every imperious kingdom and earthly power, every religious fanaticism masking itself in piety, 
but brutally murdering any who resist its power. Pride goeth before fall, we often say, but evil thoughts go before pride, and from evil pride comes forth murder, adultery, fornication, slander, all the symptoms of sin cataloged by our omniscient Lord Jesus Christ. Pride is a character trait of sinners. Out of the mouths of the proud come expressions of their evil hearts. From within, notice what our Lord says, from within. What comes out of their mouth comes from within their hearts, their minds, their souls, the way they think and operate. That is what comes out of their mouths. We will transform you or we will crush you if you resist. We are not bound to answer your questions, even under oath, for our pride gives us privilege of the highest elite order. What difference does it make? I am not subject to your investigation. I am above you. My language is not relevant to my greatness. Ah, uh, we hear once more the modern echo of Edom of old. Who will bring me down? I am high and mighty, more awesome than you, you puny serf, you miserable blighted Neanderthal. No one will bring me down. I have millions, even billions of dollars of power, which I have amassed to ensure my right to put you down, to dominate you, to tyrannize over you, to hold you in my supreme power. Don't you make any bones or be, make any questions about this. This is a power game. That's what we're playing here. That's what my pride entitles me to. And that is nothing more nor less than the voice of ancient Edom reprised in modern America. And the echo which we hear in the darkness is Edom is no more. Quoth the Lord God, Edom is no more. Go to Edom, saith the Lord God. There is the end of pride and arrogance of heart. There is the end of haughty vainglory. There in the death silence of those rocks and crags, there is the sovereign voice in the drama. I will bring you down, saith the Lord. I have brought you down, saith the Lord. Brag on your arrogance and demagoguery, I will bring you down. 
My prophet Obadiah assures you, I will bring even you modern sons and daughters of pride down. I will bring the proud down, saith the Lord, at last. And the echo of that declaration comes from behind the darkening shroud that creeps across the land of the arrogant and proud. Now, there is a translation issue in this third verse. And some of you may have it in the text or the margin of the version that you have in your hand. The New American Standard Bible has the rock, a common noun, but with a marginal note, sela, capital S-E-L-A, a proper noun, off to the side. Which means that there's a discussion or a dispute as to whether we translate it rock, common noun, or sela, proper noun. And the confusion comes from the fact that the word sela, S-E-L-A, is the Hebrew word for a rock in general, common noun, so small uh, s, but it is also the name of an Edomite city, proper noun, capital S. Now, capital S, Sela, appears to be the capital city of the Edomite nation in the 8th century B.C. and perhaps later, when it is conquered by the king of Judah, King Amaziah, who ruled from 797 to 767 B.C., as we find the narrative in 2 Kings 14.7. So we're going to turn back from Obadiah to 2 Kings 14, verse 7. And we'll take a look at this description of what Amaziah accomplished. And when you have it, go ahead and read it out. Second Kings 14.7 He killed of Edom in the Valley of Salt, 10,000, and took Selah by war, and named it Jokthil to this day. Good job, Richard. Good job of pronouncing Jokthil as well. Okay, now, he is Amaziah, the king who's mentioned up in the uh, first verse of the chapter. And as I indicated, he's a early 8th century B.C. monarch. He's the king of Judah. He goes to the, to the Valley of Salt, which is the Arabah Rift, south of the Dead Sea, and enters into the region of the Edomite nation, kills 10,000 Edomites, and takes Selah with a capital S by war. Here, the Hebrew word for rock needs to be the capital of a particular uh, geographical location, not just a general rock on a hillside. <clears throat> and that's what uh, gives us the clue that Selah can be translated 
with a as a proper noun as well as a common noun for rock. All right, now, if you turn over to Second Chronicles 25, we'll continue this story by looking at how the so-called chronicler, the writer of Chronicle, First and Second Chronicles, the chronicler, how he records the rest of the story, which the writer of Kings does not record. Well, it's an interesting reminder that we have to read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles together because they complement one another. It's like reading the Gospels together. They complement one another. We learn things from one Gospel that we don't learn from the others. So in Second Chronicles chapter 25, verse 14... Somebody has it, go ahead and read it out. Second Chronicles twenty five fourteen. Now it came about after Amaziah came down from slaughtering the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the sons of Seir, set them up as his gods, bowed down before them, and burned incense to them. So what does King Amaziah do? He crowns his slaughter of the Edomites, which we read, 10,000 in the Valley of Salt. He crowns his slaughter of the Edomites by doing what? By bringing their idols to Jerusalem. And not only bringing them, but bowing down before them and burning incense to them. I guess this is how you uh, reward yourself when you get a great victory. You bring all the ten gods back to your camp or to your capital city, and you bend your knee before them. Now, the Lord God was not pleased with this. So if you notice in that Second Chronicles 25 passage, verse 15, the anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah. And he sent him a prophet. Here's another one of the famous unnamed prophets in the book of Kings and Chronicles. Yes, we know about Elijah and Elisha. And we know about a few others who have names, but more often than not, we have these unnamed prophets who appear out of the blue and disappear into the blue. Here's an unnamed prophet and says to Amaziah, Why have you sought the gods of the people who have not delivered their own people from your hand? This is this masterful ridicule of the impotence of idols, which Isaiah does to, does to a fairly well. You make these things, shape them, carve them, put them in the fire, and then you bow down and you worship them? What kind of nonsense is this? You worship the thing you made with your own hands? Here you're bowing down before these gods that couldn't even save their own country? What's the matter with you? You gone? You smoking LSD or something out there when you were on this campaign? You drink? You drink yourself into a stupor with good old Palestinian wine or something? What? What are you doing, Amaziah? What were you thinking? Their gods couldn't stand against you or your army, and yet you're going to harvest them all up and bring them back to Jerusalem. And then you're going to bow down before these impotent tin-horned goddess, gods and goddesses. This is madness. This is madness. But politicians major in madness. 
And here's a case of Amaziah majoring in international policy madness. I'll bring their gods to my country. And I'll honor and bow down to their gods in my country. And, and surely, surely that will make us more prosperous. Well, needless to say, the prophet says that God will bring you down for your pride and disobedience and your flagrant idolatry. And we turn over to Second Chronicles 25, verse 27, towards the end of the chapter. You already know from verse 15 that this is not going to turn out well. And when you read verse 27, we find out that it's not going to turn out well. And from the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, bowing down to the idols of the Edomites, they conspired against him in Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem didn't like this. And he fled to Lachish. Lachish is west of Jerusalem about 16, 18 miles. And I'll comment in a minute on what they discovered in Lakish just this year in their excavation uh, report. But they sent after him to Lakish and killed him there. They assassinated him. Now, it would be interesting to go into the details of why the people in Jerusalem rose up against Amaziah. It's connected here to his turning against the Lord. And so it suggests that there may be an Orthodox party of believing Jews in Jerusalem at this time who rose up in rebellion against Amaziah for his idolatry. Possible. But, of course, there's another possibility. The other possibility is there's a Baal cult in Jerusalem, and they don't want any competing idols from the Edomites taking up their space and robbing them of their money and also of their prostitutes, etc., 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 So it won't solve the possible conundrums of why this happened, but it did. And it did by the determinant foreknowledge and counsel of Almighty God. The Lord fulfilled the word of that unnamed prophet, and he brought King Amaziah down, down to death by assassination. That's the most humiliating death that a politician or a king can undergo. Assassination. Well, what did they find in Lakish and publish this week? A massive gate in Lakish divided into three sections. And in some of those sections, benches. Yes, benches. Why would there be benches at the gates of Lachish? Inside the uh, main gate, main gate placed at the center of the main wall that surrounds the city of Lachish. There's the main gate. Behind the gate, these three divisions with benches 
Why would they have these benches at the main gate? Go ahead, Marge. Because that's where the elders sat in the Old Testament. How many passages do you have in the Bible that say the elders met at the gate or the elders gathered at the gate? Where does Boaz go to win Ruth in chapter 4 of Ruth? He goes to the gate. So, here you have an archaeological confirmation of the fact that there were benches in that gate at Lachish for the elders and for others to sit and make judgments and decisions. Now, the other thing that was found in that excavation of that gate was a toilet. Now, you may say, well, that's not particularly attractive. It's not intended to be. But it is a confirmation of a biblical passage which comes from the career of King Jehu. Now, let's see if I can remember where it was. It is in Second Kings. It is in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 27, which talks about the career of Jehu, who, of course, destroyed the house of Ahab. And Jehu also destroys, in verse 27, the sacred pillar of Baal and broke down the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus, Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. So why does the Bible say he turned the shrine of Baal into a latrine? In order to make it unclean, to desecrate it. And what did they find this week in Lachish? They found what appears to be a toilet at that gate. In other words, that gate was desecrated and turned into an ostensible latrine. Two discoveries within the last archaeological season, which confirm two basic points of your Bible. One explicit verse of Jehu's desecrating a Baal shrine with a toilet and and a toilet being found in Lachish, and benches inside the gate, which are named numerous times in the Scriptures for the place where the elders sit in judgment. Do you realize that the longer you live and the longer the world goes on, the more that they find in 
Jerusalem, in Jerusalem and in Palestine, in Israel, the more they find that confirms what you're reading. More and more and more of it. Dare you say, it's a myth. It's a political invention. It's a narrative of post-exilic Jews read back into their hoary past in order to make heroes out of people that never lived. That's a standard liberal operating gospel with respect to the Old Testament Hebrew monarchy. It never really coalesced until the 7th century B.C. David is an imaginary figure. Solomon is a reconstruction. Moses never existed. It's all a put-up job. And yet, one discovery after another. More so than at any other time in the history of the investigation of Israel's archaeology, more so in your time than any other time. Confirmation of verse after verse, element after element of the biblical text. When the Jewish archaeologists uncovered this gate with its benches and its toilet, when they undercut, they were ecstatic. They're not Christians. They're Jewish scientists, archaeological anthropologists. But boy, do they know their Bible. Well, why would they be interested in the Bible? Because of this historical text. It's an historical document. And when they found this, they knew exactly what to, where to look. They looked right into 2 Kings 10 with Jehu desecrating that Baal shrine. They knew exactly where to go in their Hebrew Bible. And they said, look, look what we've got here. We've got a verification of what the Bible says Jehu did with what we just dug up in Lachish. I'll leave you to chew on that as you take your break. And you come back in a few minutes and we'll continue with Obadiah. Sorry to get off on the sidetrack, but when I saw that news, I saw that story this week, I was ecstatic. (laughs) They've got pictures. It's, It's wonderful. I gave you that Associates for Biblical Research website, and they've got tremendous pictures of that excavation there. Fantastic. Well, anyway, if you, if you need to be reminded of where to go look, I'll, I'll give you the website again. Just let me know. All right. Now, if the proper translation of Obadiah 3 is the proper noun Selah with a capital S, we are perhaps subtly reminded of the story about King Amaziah and the interface of pride with respect to Edom mirrored in Judah's historical pride as well as Edom's. That would be a subtle reminder, maybe too subtle, but nonetheless that's a possibility. By which I am suggesting the character of proud and arrogant Edom is not peculiar to the sons and daughters of Esau. The sons of Jacob, Amaziah in particular, 
are also filled with pride and arrogance, especially as they bow down before lifeless idols in turning their backs upon the living God. And that bow-down idolatry will continue in Judah and Jerusalem to the 6th century B.C., to the days of the prophet Obadiah and King Nebuchadnezzar, to the days of the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah because of her idolatrous pride in betrayal of the grace, mercy, and holiness of the living and eternal God. But if the proper translation of Obadiah 3 is the common or generic noun for rock, which is in the New American Standard translation, we are reminded of the rocky steeps which characterize the geography of ancient Edom, steep clefts and craggy heights, all of which mirror the vaunted pride of the Edomite nation. Now, I prefer this reading. I agree with the New American Standard. Not a capital S for Sela here. I prefer this reading because of the broader geographical flavor which flows on into verse 4, as I shall point out later in my remarks. So I hold to the translation that's there in the text of the new NASB because I think it fits with the flavor of what's going on in 3 and 4 together. But this is not the kingdom to which we belong. A kingdom of judgment and destruction. For in God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, we belong to a kingdom which is theirs. It is the kingdom of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, a kingdom of life and glory, the everlasting kingdom of heaven. That is where our citizenship resides, in the kingdom which belongs Yahweh to the Lord, Obadiah verse 21. Don't ever forget the ending of this book. This kingdom belongs Yahweh to the Lord as it belongs to the sons and daughters of his only begotten and firstborn from the dead, our Savior from judgment and destruction, Jesus Christ. All right, now we move on to verse 4. And I once again remind you of the structure of this verse, which contains an element of symmetry with the preceding verse. Do you see it? March, do you see it? Mark, do you see it? Very good. The phrase, bring you down. Who will bring me down, says Edom. I will bring you down, says the Lord. 
Here is a particularly graphic and dramatic reversal motif. The haughty arrogance of Edom, whose braggadocio concludes verse 3, is reversed. It is humiliated. It is abased. It is degraded. It is vitiated. It is discomfited. It is brought down by the Lord God who brings down in shame the vaunted proud. Does he also bring down the arrogant, lewd demagogue? Yes, he does, at last. Does he, do, does he bring down the smug, corrupt, brazen liar? Yes, he does, at last. Does he bring down the scheming narcissist? Yes, he does, at last. Does he bring down the haughty religious hypocrite? Yes, he does, at last. Does he bring down those who fawn love, justice, peace, but who foment hate, injustice to the innocent, turmoil, riot, and bloodshed? Yes, he does, at last. For as they have done, so it will be done to them. Obadiah verse 15. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing. God signals the eschatological reversal. A humiliation of Edom which ends in her final destruction. The event, as we have noted before, Babylon's King Nabonidus. His campaign to obliterate the Edomite nation in 553 B.C. The antithesis of reversal, verse 4, the antithesis of verse 3. The antithesis of reversal by God's hand through a Babylonian tyrant. Yes, God will use godless tyrants to reverse the arrogance even of his own people. He has done it before. He is prepared to do it again. We have explored the symmetry of the abasement motif in verses 3 and 4. Now let me point out other brilliant symmetrical elements in this two-verse unit. Characterization, as we pointed out in our remarks on verse 3, <coughs> characterization unfolds in many ways, one of which is speech. Who speaks in verse 3? Anyone? Eve. Now, who speaks in verse 4? The Lord. <coughs> you see it, the antithetical voices. All right. <coughs> The arrogant creature, the sovereign creator. The character of the one, like the builders of the Tower of Babel, a virtual self-deification, as if there were no other power on earth or heaven save their own delusional divine deception. We are masters. We are lords. We are gods on earth with absolute power over all other puny beings beneath us. And from the character of God, 
from the voice of the divine and sovereign character in this drama, the words, Edom est delenda. Edom is no more. The voice that is heard over the once flourishing nation of Edom is not the voice of that proud and arrogant nation. Who will bring me down? It is the supernatural voice which declares, Edom is no more. I have brought you down. Other symmetrical elements. The New American Standard has two clauses in this fourth verse, which begin with the word though. The Hebrew word could have been translated if. You see it on your handout sheet. It is the Hebrew term im. Im. You could translate it if or though. Now you will note that the two clauses in verse 4 are parallel to two clauses in verse 3. The motif again is Edom's pride. Here, her arrogant smugness and self-assurance likened in verse 3 to the high clefts of the mountain rocks and the lofty nature of her dwelling places. Now verse 4 expands, intensifies this symmetry with two images, two visual images. Remember, this is a vision. This is Obadiah's vision. He's painting images and pictures. Visual images in verse 4 of eagle's eyrie and the nesting stars of the night sky. So, even if Edom could build her loftiness exalted to the height of the eagle's or vulture's eyrie, which is, of course, unlikely, the Lord God declares he will bring her down. And even if she could set her nest among the stars of heaven, which is impossible, the Lord God declares he will bring her down. This image of Edom exalted to the heights of the stars in heaven is Obadiah's image of Edom's divine aspirations. Like the gods on high, so high is Edom's own self-deification. To dwell in the heavens among the stars, which most pagan cultures worshipped as gods and goddesses, no need to think pagan Edom was an exception, to dwell in the heavens among the stars was to be invincible like the gods, untouchable like the gods, divine like the gods. Edom's high and heavenly arrogance was a direct claim to divine status. Let me repeat that. Edom's high and heavenly arrogance, noted here in verse 4, was a direct claim to divine status. I am Lord, says Edom. I am Lord and Master, says Edom. I am, says Edom. But Yahweh Adonai says to Edom, I am. I am Almighty Lord and Master of the eagle's heights and the starry heavens. I am, not you, for I made them and I sustain them. You, O Edom, are dust and ashes. I remind you again, I remind you again that this is not the kingdom to which we belong. 
a kingdom of judgment and destruction. Our dramatic narrative contains the visual panel of a different tapestry. In God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we belong to the kingdom which is theirs, the kingdom of life and glory, the everlasting kingdom of heaven. Now there is a vision. There is a vision for you to contemplate, and you have pictures. Try Revelation 21 and 22. That is where our citizenship resides, in the kingdom which belongs to the Lord. I remind you once again of verse 21 of this book of Obadiah. Our citizenship belongs in the kingdom which belongs to the Lord, a kingdom which belongs to the sons and daughters of his only begotten, the firstborn from the dead our Savior from judgment and destruction, Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom we belong. you have any questions on verses 2, 3, or 4? All right, well, let's close with prayer, but I'd ask you to remain in your seats after we pray, if you will, please. Our Father, we are impressed once again, not only with the wonder of the poetic drama here, these visionary images which Obadiah has painted so powerfully, but we are also overwhelmed by the ongoing sin of pride, which descends not just from the Edomites, but descends from proud Adam and Eve and infects all of us. We see it on our TV screens every day. We are smothered by it, whether it comes from the main power sources of our culture, whether it comes from Hollywood and the entertainment industry, whether it comes from the political arena, whether it comes from the educational arena, whether it comes from the institutions of our culture, which are infected with arrogance and pride. We see it every day. This will to power, dominate, control other human beings, even in the church we see it. We see it in power brokers, in positions of authority and denominations. We see it in pastorates. We see it across the boards in religious America. Power. Power. The desire to have power. Oh, Lord, it is what brought Edom down, and it is what bring, will bring every institution, including the church, down. But we thank you that in Jesus Christ... We belong to the church invisible. And he will never allow the gates of hell to prevail against his bride. And so we cling to him and to his kingdom, the kingdom which belongs to Yahweh, 
to the Lord, both in Obadiah's day and in our own day. For we have no hope in any other than Jesus Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.